You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Other stories in Judges, it starts the same way. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Over and over and over again, we see this common refrain. The people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it even starts with the same gods they've been continually following uh, synchristically with Yahweh. They've continually, through the stories of Ehud and through the stories of, of Gideon and Othniel, that they've been serving Baal and Ashtoreth at the same time they are serving Yahweh. This time, though, with Jephthah, the story starts differently because it does start with Baal and Ashtoreth. But it includes more. So the Israelites were not just content to worship the gods, uh, uh, the god Baal and Ashtoreth, as well as the Lord. They started to go after other gods, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And if we add up the number of gods that are there, it comes to the number seven, and seven is a significant number in the Bible. It's the number of completion. And so this, coupled with the next line, they forsook the Lord and did not serve him, suggests that unlike previous times when the Israelites were kind of mixing in worship of Yahweh with worship of Baal and Ashtoreth, this time they abandoned God completely. They tossed him to the side. We don't know what their reasons were for this, but we can see the outcome. They completely abandoned the Lord, and it does not make him happy. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. So we see, first of all, the sin of Israel is greater than it was before that it's getting worse and worse. They're abandoning God completely now, and they're worshiping more, uh, more idols. They're, they're whoring themselves, is, is the word that's used in the ESV, to more gods. And the Lord's response is, is greater as well. In the past, he'd always uh, allowed a single enemy to oppress them. And this time, it's two enemies. I'm going to bring up a map here. Can you guys all see that? Okay, so on, let me just see if I can maximize it so I can see what I'm seeing here. Um, right, on this side, uh, this is where the Philistines would have come from. They would have come from the West near the Mediterranean. And the Ammonites would have been on this side of me in the East. And so what you have now is uh, something that's much, much worse than what the Israelites have faced before. They have two major enemies basically pushing in on them from both sides. And we'll mostly leave the Philistines for, for Samson next week. Um, the primary enemy first is the Ammonites, and they are coming in from the east. And so we can see uh, in the east, we can see where Gilead is. It's around the territory of Dan and, or not Dan, Gad, and around the territory of Manasseh. 
And so Gilead is kind of the primary area where uh, the Ammonites would have been coming in and they would have been raiding, uh, raping and pillaging. So they do this for the first year and it's bad. But it doesn't say that the Israelites uh, repent at this point. It doesn't say that they turn back to God. It doesn't say they cry to him for help, which suggests that the Israelites continued their uh, process of calling on other gods for 18 years. For 18 years, they forsake the Lord. And it seems that only after 18 years have gone by that somebody mentions you know what happened in, uh, in previous times when we were oppressed? Uh, we called on the Lord, and he brought forth uh, a judge to save us. That seems like a pretty good idea. You know, things are pretty dire right now. We've reached our, our uh, a very, very, we've reached rock bottom. It, it can't get worse than this. So, you know, we might as well turn to Yahweh. And that's what they do. They call out to the Lord. And the Lord's response is also different than what has happened before in Judges. The people of Israel cry out to the Lord saying, we've sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and served the Baals. Interesting that they only mention Baal. There's six other groups of gods that they're worshiping, but apparently they only consider Baal to be significant. And the Lord says to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and the Amorites? from the Ammonites and the Philistines. So clearly the Ammonites and the Philistines had been problems in the past and the God had delivered them from them. The Sidonians also, the Amalekites and the Maonites, you cried out to me and I saved you. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you. And you can see God's anger here, that he's angry that the Israelites believe that they can manipulate him into saving them. And so he rejects this idea of salvation. He rejects acting in the same way that he did before. And you can almost see the panic in the Israelites' uh, minds now. They're like, what? This is all we're always worked in the past. Like, we haven't necessarily needed to repent but we have been in need, and the Lord has come and saved us. What, what do we need to do now? What, what uh, do we need to do to get God to help us? And so we get to verse 15 in chapter 10. And if this verse was 100% genuine, uh, it would have been the, the greatest verse in Judges because it's a true statement of what repentance looks like. And I'll get why I don't think it was necessarily 100% genuine in a second. But the people of Israel basically say, we have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you, only deliver us this day. And I think this model of repentance, even if the people of Israel were not necessarily 100% genuine in, in it when they said it, uh, it's a model for us today. When we repent uh, to the Lord, when we turn our back on our sin and we turn back towards the Lord, our response always has to be, I don't care what the results of my repenting are going to be. I don't care if they make my life worse. I don't care if they end up with me getting fired or if there ends up being conflict in my life. The most important thing is that I repent and I make uh, and I am right with you, Lord, that uh, I turn my back on the sin and I turn towards you. 
So even if the Israelites weren't necessarily genuine, that is still a model of repentance that we need to look at. The reason I don't think it might have necessarily been 100% genuine is that we look at the response of the Lord and it's kind of lukewarm. Like he doesn't uh, act like he did before. He doesn't say, okay, well, here's your, here's your uh, judge, Jephthah. I'm putting my spirit upon him and he's going to go and beat back the Ammonites. All it says is that he became impatient over the misery of Israel. And this is the last time that God speaks um, in this story until about halfway through chapter 11. So there's going to be a long time. A lot of stuff is going to happen. And God is not going to speak into any of these situations. And that's important for us to realize. So now that God is done speaking, he's, he's irritated, he's impatient over the mis misery of Israel, we see what the situation of Israel is when the story starts. We see uh, that the stage has been set for Jephthah, and it's set with the Ammonites invading uh, one more time. This would probably have been time number 18. The Am Ammonites call to arms, and they come into Gilead. So they're coming in to the east part uh, of Israel on the east side of the Jordan. And the people of Israel uh, gather together at Mizpah. Now, this is kind of weird because there's at least two, uh, but maybe upwards of four and five places in Israel called Mizpah. And even in this story, there might be multiple places called Mizpah that are referenced. And the running theory of many commentators is that the Mizpah that's referenced here is actually on the west side. So the Ephraimites and the Judaites and the, uh, the Benjamites, they're all massing at Mizpah on the west side. And the elders of Gilead are looking at this and they're like, that's great. The army of Israelites from like the main army of Israelites is on the west side of the river. And here we are on the east side of the river and things are not going well for us. The Ammonites are here. So what we need is we need a leader. We need someone to take command of our armies and someone to go forth and lead them into battle. And if they do that successfully, they will lead Gilead. So they're not proclaiming this guy king over all Israel. They're just proclaiming him leader over all of Gilead. And this sets the stage for Jephthah. And the first thing that we learn about Jephthah is that he was a mighty warrior. Uh, some translations say mighty man of valor. And that's important, but we'll get to uh, what that probably means and how he gained those skills in a little bit. The most important thing for his early life that we need to realize is that he was a son of a prostitute. And this basically meant that he was from the wrong side of the tracks, that uh, he was not the right kind of person to be living in Gilead. Now, there's some debate uh, about Jephthah's parentage. There's some commentators that have suggested that Gilead was an actual man living in the land of Gilead be odd why his parents would name him that. It's like naming your kid Coquitlam. But uh, a man named Gilead uh, sleeps with a prostitute and his eldest son is Jephthah. The other argument is that it was referring to the area of Gilead and because she was a prostitute, nobody knew who his father was. Regardless, the important point is that uh, the people of Gilead, his, his uh, brothers, um, and later we see the elders of Gilead are complicit 
in driving him out. And it's interesting that the word they use is, uh, is flee. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Fled doesn't suggest they asked him nicely to leave. You know what, Jephthah, you just, you really don't fit with us here. We Gileadites, we all know who our fathers are. We're not mother, our mothers aren't prostitutes. We, we come from good families and you don't, you really don't fit here. Please go. Fled suggests they threatened him, that they tried to kill him. And they failed to do so. And he fled to Tob. And Tob, um, was around Damascus uh, by some accounts. And so that's uh, a couple hundred miles uh, to the north, uh, northeast of, uh, of Gilead. So he actually traveled quite a distance. And, uh, and there he gathers a number of worthless fellows around him. And it says that in the ESV that uh, they went out with him. And that means that uh, he basically led them into battle. And this is where we go back to Jephthah uh, becoming a might or being a mighty warrior or a mighty man of valor. It seems that in Tob, in leading these worthless fellows, that he was able to develop not only his skills as a warrior, but also his skills as a general and a leader of men. And that suggests that he was probably a mercenary. So he fought for the local warlords in battles. But the fact that the men that he was leading were worthless is interesting because the last time we saw this phrase, worthless men, was in the last major story in Judges, in the story of Abimelech. And we see in the story of Abimelech that Abimelech hires a bunch of worthless men. And the first thing they do is they go and they kill Abimelech's 70 brothers. So clearly these men are okay with murder. If you look at the root of, uh, of worthless in Hebrew, it's the same root word that Proverbs uses as uh, the English translation of fool. And clearly, when you read throughout the book of Proverbs, the worst thing to be is a fool, because the fool is a person who deliberately turns their back on the ways of the Lord and deliberately opposes what God wants done. And so we can see effectively that Jephthah has surrounded himself with a group of fools, which suggests that they probably weren't just mercenaries. When there wasn't any, uh, any fighting going on, they were probably also bandits. So not a good group of people. And so the next thing, this is almost like a flashback. So verse 1, 2, and 3 is a flashback. So we're seeing the position of Israel. The Ammonites are invading. We flash back to Jephthah's early life, him developing his skills as a general and as a warrior. We flash forward again. And the Ammonites are making war against Israel, and they, are, they have already invaded Gilead. And so the elders of Gilead decide, you know what, we need a commander. They talk about it. Uh, we already looked at this in verse 10. They already, or chapter 10, they already say what they want uh, this man to be. There's like, if somebody is a general for us, we'll also make him leader. And so it seems like the elders of Gilead got together and, and discussed this. And they're like, there's nobody in around here that, that could possibly lead us. There's no one here with the skills of, of a general. And it suggests that the fame of Jephthah was great enough at this point that the people of Gilead knew who he was. He wasn't just that guy that we threatened to kill if he would, 
wouldn't leave uh, 10, 15 years ago, he actually made a name for himself as a warrior, maybe as a bandit leader up in Tobe. So the elders of Gilead kind of all look around at each other. And they're like, all right, well, I, I guess we go get Jephthah. And so they go and they go to Jephthah and uh, they give him uh, their opening uh, bid in, in, the, in the first negotiation in his life. And so before we get into his first negotiation, we're going to, we're going to go into Zoom breakout rooms. And uh, they are super awkward. We've talked about this every week. Um, lean into the awkwardness. If nobody is uh, willing to talk, be the first one to talk. Make sure you're unmuted, because that's important. Um, so we're, uh, David is going to break us up into uh, breakout rooms. And uh, we're going to talk. And so the questions we're going to look at, uh, we're going to discuss are what are some areas that we can use negotiation and compromise without affecting our Christian witness? Um, what are some areas we cannot compromise uh, or negotiate in without affecting our witness? And can we use negotiation and compromise at all in our interactions with God? Ooh, so three, three big questions. Can we uh, to have those three questions one more time, please? Um, what are areas we can negotiate and compromise without uh, uh, affecting our Christian witness? Uh, what are areas we cannot use negotiation and compromise uh, without affecting our witness? And can we use negotiation and compromise in our interactions with God? So we're going to split up into breakout question? rooms. Oh, yeah, Natalia? What's the, what, what exactly is meant by Christian witness here? So if we negotiate and compromise on certain things, like if we negotiate on the position of Jesus as our Lord and Savior, um, that we can't do that. We can't compromise on you mean that like our, and still our be faith, Christians. Right? Yes. Our, our okay. faith yeah. and how we live it out. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry. The, the, good, good question. Oh, there is Brian. <laughs> you got to unmute yourself, eh? Yeah. There. <laughs> do you hear me call you out there? <laughs> no, no. I just got back. <clears throat> So what do you think about negotiation? I well, like your hair, man. Yeah. I, had, I had to take a quick little uh, break, and I thought this was the best time for it. <laughs> and here I am calling you out. Yeah. How are uh, you doing all right? I'm doing okay, yeah. Yeah, the stupid COVID and all that stuff. And uh, Oh, I know. I know, getting worse again. And uh, Yeah, Alberta is crazy. Well, it's the same here. They kind of semi-locked down a little bit. Really? Across well, the country, it's getting pretty bad yeah. now, we really need to learn to negotiate how to do this better. No, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. All right. I saw you preach on the weekend. I saw, listened to a little bit of it. That was good. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Hey, so what do you think about this negotiation idea? <clears throat> I'm as, all for it. As, as Christians, can we negotiate? Can we negotiate with God? No. No. I mean, <laughs> I think you can try to, but I think it's, I think God rolls his uh, eyes. <laughs> 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 kind of like when uh you know uh bartering for oh if there's how many righteous people will you save them please oh but how if there's just 10 oh what if there's just five well what about gideon i mean gideon negotiated and god was gracious uh, to him. you mean the the fleece yeah i'm not sure if that was a note that wasn't more of a negotiation sure it was it means if it's if it's dry it means yeah you're on board i'm gonna go and god yeah. could have said no just trust me but it, yeah, I guess kind of. It, it's kind of more of a test than a negotiation. 
but I, I see what you mean. They're similar. I mean, there's interaction in terms. Yeah, of, there's interaction. Yeah, but I don't think it's like the okay, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. Like as far as, um, you know, make me famous, and uh, I'll serve you, or right, right, or you know, win this lottery ticket and I'll give away the yeah. money, kind of thing. I know because I've asked God quite a few times to win the lottery. <laughs> <It's never laughs> I would do so much better with the money than most people would. Do you know what? I would, I would give away a lot of it. Maybe, I would. I'd, I'd, maybe I'd give even most way of more it. than most. <laughs> it wasn't. I returned everything. You would return everything, Michael? Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. You're talking to somebody else. Da David Wood, did you notice that uh, Rosalind is uh, with us too there t today? I see Rosalind, but she's kind of shy. She was I know. sort of there. But not am really. I shy or am I not? <laughs> we, can't, we can't see you. We just see yeah. a picture of you. I but, know. The drawing looks just like her, though. And the thing is, we <laughs> right. did see you earlier. It's not like you don't have a camera, Roz. That's very true. <laughs> Are you shy because Brian's here? I get it. I yeah, I'm no? sure that's it. <laughs> <laughs> He's seen me look much worse than this. Come on. <laughs> yeah, but you're the one that used to always uh, point out that I, I, as I was your youth pastor, I gained a bald spot. <laughs> oh, you know what? I've heard that story. And I, I hold uh, dealing with you, Roz, as the, the biggest reason I, I got, I went bald. I lost hair. You know, that's totally fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, you know what? I've known Roz for many years and look. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's, that's I had a full head of hair when I started at CA. Common denominator there. Common yeah, denominator. Right. <laughs> at least you have this, right? You have some puffy stuff, so. Yeah. That's good. All right, I'm going to give people the one one more minute notice. <laughs> that was a great conversation about negotiation. One more minute. Well, I mean, Did Don King didn't want to join. Well, I saw, I saw Sandra. Yeah, he's there. He sent me a note. He's like, yeah. oh, I'm not joining. I'm not playing. Which is not... That, that that ain't cool. I'm just saying. Uh, yeah, I mean, we we've, we talked about it before. We were kind of. I, I know it doesn't uh, work. It's too a little little difficult. But we were kind of wishing that uh, it would have been nice if if our church people that meet here could have our own breakout group. No, no, you got to get to know people on this side of. The yeah, but time. you don't really have time to do that. Sure, you do. You got ten weeks. Yeah, but you're different with people all the time and you just have time to cover the question and then all of a sudden. Yeah, but you know over. what? It's, it's, I think it's important for us to make friends with people from Alberta because they're, they're not easy to make friends with. And That's so a good point. This is a picture of reconciliation. Well, remember, I used to be. I was, Maybe other people are listening to me. Uh, of our faith. Is that what yeah, you're I mean, we love people from Alberta. Yes. <laughs> Remember, Dave, my first, uh, I was first a pastor in BC. Oh, that's right. And now you're an Alliance pastor again. So full circle. Yeah. All Alberta right. Now it feels like a different country with COVID. I'm just Well, kidding. And with their snow too. Yeah. I've oh, yes. Bri Brian, I think you were pastor for my wife. Roz, yes. Roz Vath. Yes, yes I know. I, I've been Ross is before. hiding yourself. Okay. She's hiding her face. I am so. hiding. That's yeah, we have been chatting. So awesome. how effective of a pastor was Brian? That's the question. Oh, sorry. Everybody's listening in now. Uh, sorry, Mike, over to you. Yeah, I mean, Mike, I apologize for the way she is. Probably a lot of it's my fault. 
Nice. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, take it away, Mike. <laughs> All right. Uh, just let me bring up my screens here again. Yeah, Mike. <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah. So hopefully your your discussions were good. Um, in our group, we uh, we basically said that yes, there there are definitely areas uh, where negotiation and compromise are acceptable. Um, you know, in one of the examples that Martha gave was in, in a job situation. If you're negotiating uh, a salary uh, or or a salary raise, we we can we can do that without affecting our Christian witness. Um, in business, if you're if you're a business leader, you can enter into negotiations without uh, necessarily affecting uh, your Christian witness. Anybody else want to uh, chime in? You'll have to unmute yourself first. I want to say something. Okay. Um, well, we were talking about um, like um, the ways that how we worship. We're standing, we're sitting down, we're bowing heads or we're raising hands, we're on our knees. It doesn't matter. As long as we're worshiping our God, then that could be an area of compromise and acceptance. Yeah. Anyone else? So what do, you, about think about, uh, what do you think about Gideon? Do you think he negotiated with God? With the <laughs> is that a negotiation? Uh, that's a good question. They're, Actually, they're... I am asking the question. I don't know. It, it kind of strikes it like Gideon is like, I'll go, but I need to have a dry fleece. I'll go if there's a wet fleece. So it is a bit, you know, because if, if God just said, no, you have to trust me on this. It'd be interesting to see how it played out. Yeah. Lori, do you have something to say? You're, you're muted. Okay, go. Yeah, I was just going to say that, uh, yeah, we were kind of talk. we weren't talking about Gideon, but we were talking about can, is it possible to negotiate with God? And um, I know one of the thoughts that I had about that was um, only when it's within God's will. Um, so we, we may think we're negotiating, but God, God already knows what's, what's going to go on and it's already part of his plan. So mm -hmm. I, I was thinking about Jacob when um, it seems to me, if I go back and think of the story, when, when Jacob was on his way to um, Haran and he, the ladder appeared and he had this encounter with God and so on. And, and it, it was a negotiation about, I will be, you will be my God or, you know, and so on if, but I think it was already God's plan. It wasn't outside of God's plan in the first place. So mm. That's how I see it anyway. Mm -hmm. Can Thanks, I Lord. say something? Yes. I agree with Lori that, um, you know, like, okay, sometimes we're, I feel like Gideon is um, also like doubting. Is it from the God that I hear this? Or maybe it's some other spirits that are talking to me. So he kind of tries to double check things maybe. Um that is acceptable, I think, because we are to, you know, sort of ask the spirits who are talking to us, 
you know, like, do you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You know, we, we can double check who's talking to us. But I agree with Lori on the point that if it's in God's will, then he will allow this and he will make the tests possible. Mm-hmm. But if it's not, then he can he can send his wrath. And we've seen that in various stories throughout the Bible too, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Um, I think we'd probably all agree that there are areas that we cannot uh, negotiate and compromise without uh, negatively affecting our Christian witness. So I think we're just going to move on from, from that then. Uh, but yeah. When we look at how Jephthah negotiates, I think the one thing that uh, we need to realize is that the way Jephthah negotiates, uh, it's not possible to do that with God. Because uh, Jephthah, as we'll see, especially in his later negotiations, uh, approaches God uh, not as he is God and I am just a man. He approaches God almost as an equal, and that creates all kinds of badness. So... Um, We're going to continue on with the story of Jephthah. And uh, we see Jephthah entering into his first negotiation with the elders of Gilead. And the elders of Gilead, you'd think in theory, have already set the bar for what, uh, what they're going to offer. They've already said, whoever goes out and leads our troops, he's going to be leader over all of Gilead. But that's not the opening negotiation uh, that they, that's not the opening um, offer that they bring to Jephthah. They just say, come be our general. They don't even say, you know, you can come back and live in Gilead. You can come back and, and be one of our people. They just say, come be our leader and that we may fight against the Ammonites. And Jephthah's response is like, okay, so you guys tried to kill me. You clearly hate me. And now that you have no other options, now you come to me and you ask for help. And there's some parallels here between uh, the Israelites trying to negotiate with God in chapter 10, trying to uh, get God to help them in chapter 10, and the Gileadites trying to get Jephthah to help them in chapter 11. They both come um, and, and make their offer only to have the person that they're expecting to save them uh, utterly reject that offer. The difference is, though, that God, um, his only response after he says, let your new shiny gods come and save you, uh, is that he is uh, impatient with the suffering of Israel. We contrast that with Jephthah. Jephthah sees this as an opportunity. And the Israel, so he rejects the uh, elders of Gilead's first uh, first offer, and so they offer him uh, something more. Okay, fine. If you come and lead us, uh, because we're desperate, yes, this is why we've turned to you. If you come, you lead us, you fight, and and you uh, defeat the Ammonites, you can be head over all of us. So you will lead all the Gileadites. Still not enough for Jephthah. Jephthah gives them a counteroffer. If you bring me home to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And so Jephthah includes God in his negotiation. And so we see back in chapter 10 that the Israelites have thrown out all their other gods. So 
depending on how genuine that is, uh, ostensibly, at least on the surface, they are once again monotheistic. They are once again following God alone. And so Jephthah seems to know this, and he knows that if he invokes the name of the Lord, then this ups the ante for the elders of Gilead. They're going to be even more reluctant to go back on their agreement. And that's got to be what Jephthah's thinking. These guys have already tried to kill me. They've already uh, driven me out of my home. How can I ever trust them? And the elders of Gilead are like, oh, he called on the Lord. Okay, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. It doesn't even end there. Jephthah ups the ante one more time. And he and the elders of Gilead, they go all the way to Mizpah. Now, if you remember from chapter 10, Mizpah is where the rest of Israel had gathered all their men. And so they go to Mizpah and they declare their, uh, their oath there that Jephthah is going to be leader over all of Gilead. And you got to think Jephthah's thinking, the more people that hear them say this, the less chance they're going to stab me in the back. So it's very practical in Jephthah's perspective. And we can see in this first negotiation uh, that Jephthah is like, wow, all, all I had to do was talk. And I literally got everything I ever wanted. My home accepted me back, and not only did they accept me back, but they made me leader. Man, this is great. Talking gets everything done. And so this leads into his second negotiation. And his second negotiation is now as the leader of Gilead. And he tries to negotiate with the king of the Ammonites. Now, the Ammonites are already invading. And so you might think that Jephthah is trying to, to sue for peace here, or at least try, trying to gain peace. He doesn't sue. He doesn't give anything up. But he's trying to gain peace. But Jephthah's pretty practical. He also probably realizes that this is not likely to be successful. But he still has to try it. And in doing so, he gets the moral high ground. He tried to go for peace and if the enemy king rejects it, then at least he knows morally uh, he's in the right place when war comes. And so Jephthah sends a messenger. What do you have against me that you have come to fight me and against my land? And the king of the Ammonites responds, it's not your land. You know, 300 years ago, when, when you Israelites came up out of Egypt, you took this land and this land was our land. And then we see Jephthah's negotiation skills kick in. But it's interesting because this isn't just a negotiation. This is also a, a court case before a judge. Jephthah's laying out his arguments as if there was a judge uh, listening to them. And we'll see at the end that there was. And so his first argument is from uh, history. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry, King, King of Ammon. You are mistaken. This land, when we took it, was uh, held by the Amorites, not the Ammonites. We tried to go through Moab. We tried to go through Edom. They both said no. So we skirted their territory, and we tried to go through the land of the Amorites, and they fought against us, and we absolutely defeated them, and we took their land. By right of conquest, Gilead um, and the east side of the Jordan, this is ours. So I'm sorry, you're mistaken. Uh, you're not just mistaken from a historical perspective, though. You're also mistaken from a theological perspective. Our God has given us this land. 
Specifically, he ordained that we have this land. He didn't give us your land. We haven't tried to conquer Ammon because that's not our land. We are content with the land that we have, that the land that our God has given us. You should be content with what Chemish has given you. And then he goes back and he uses a third historical example. And there's kind of two subpoints to this third historical example. The first one is that he uses the example of Balak of Moab, and the story is back in, in Numbers. And uh, Balak tries to get Balaam to, uh, to curse the Israelites uh, so that he can go to war with them. Instead, Balaam of uh, the talking donkey fame um, blesses the Israelites, and so Balak doesn't attack the Israelites. And so Jephthah basically says, you know what, Balak, uh, he was king of Moab, and Moab was a brother kingdom to the, to the Ammonites. So the Moabites and the Ammonites, they both are descended from Lot. And so there was this connection between the two kingdoms. They were often allies in battle. So he's saying, look at your brother king, uh, Balak, from 300 years ago. He didn't dare attack us. Not only that, it's been 300 years. You guys haven't tried to take this territory in 300 years. Why are you trying to take it now? Barry Webb um, points out that Jephthah ends this uh, negotiation with uh, probably the greatest uh, statement of faith that he makes in his entire life. <clears throat> Webb argues that it is this statement of faith in, in the Lord that is the reason why Jephthah is included in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews. He says, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Jephthah is confident in God's justice. He's confident that God will rule on the side of Israel because he is a just judge. And it's an amazing statement. And it would be great if Jephthah could have followed that up in how he lived his life and in some of the actions that he did. But this here, this is his crowning moment. Unfortunately, the king of the Ammonites uh, doesn't listen to Jephthah. Now, here's an interesting point. I said earlier in chapter 10, after it says the Lord was impatient with the suffering of Israel, that he wouldn't show up for quite a while. And here he does. And how does he show up? The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. There is no suggestion up to this point that Jephthah was God's choice. There's no suggestion that Jephthah was the man that God was going to raise up to save Israel. And yet, in his mercy and his grace, he sends his spirit upon Jephthah. And in, so, in inducing, doing so, he anoints Jephthah in the same way that he anointed Othniel, and in the same way that he, he anointed Gideon to be his chosen rescuer of Israel. And if Jephthah had just left it at that. If he had passed through Gilead and Manasseh gathering troops and gone on to Mizpah of Gilead and from Mizpah of Gilead attacked the Ammonites, if that was the end of Jephthah's story, everything would have been so much better for him. Because what happens next is quite frankly terrible. Jephthah's leading his troops. 
and victory is guaranteed for him because the spirit of the Lord is upon him. And yet it's not enough. In the same way that Gideon doubts, Jephthah doubts. Unlike Gideon, though, Jephthah doesn't ask for a sign. Jephthah tries to negotiate. And he makes a vow to the Lord. And he says, if you will give the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. It says, then whatever. Some translations say whomever. Some uh, commentators have suggested that uh, based on Jephthah's position as a leader in Israel, there's no way he would have ever actually sacrificed his daughter. So maybe something else happened. But both Barry Webb and J.D. Greer argue that from their perspective, the most accurate reading of this text, especially when you look at the word meat. So whatever comes uh, out of the doors of my house to meet me, there's an element of community there. There's an element of connection that wouldn't be uh, in terms of an animal. Even like Jephthah's favorite, favorite dog, if it dashed out, that wouldn't be somebody that he would meet coming out of his house. That would be a person. And so Jephthah is courageously volunteering to sacrifice somebody from his household uh, in order to manipulate God and guarantee victory for him. The thing is, victory was already guaranteed. The Lord is with him. And we see Jephthah's great victory that had nothing to do with the vow he just made. Jephthah crossed, crosses over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them into his hand. And he strikes them from Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth. He crushes 20 cities and he subdues the Ammonites. Jephthah is victorious. Had he not made that crazy rash vow, this very well might have been the end of his story, and we could have ended it like we've ended so many of the other stories. There was peace in the land for 40 years. But he makes a vow. And so now we have to see how that vow plays out. And Jephthah comes home. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm choking on a cough drop here. Jephthah uh, comes to his home at Mizpah. Um, just as an aside, there's a lot of Mizpahs. This Mizpah appears to be on the east side, the Mizpah of Gilead. Uh, the Mizpah that where he uh, met all the Israelites before, that appears to be on the west side in Benjamin. Anyway, just as an aside, in case anyone was confused. It does get confusing when they name a bunch of different towns the same name. Anyway, Jephthah comes home. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. Now there is a parallel here. Jephthah's daughter is coming out to him, worshiping God over the great victory that God has given Jephthah over uh, the enemies of the Israelites. In the same way that Miriam comes out to meet Moses when he returns from the Red Sea and the Lord delivering the Israelites from the Egyptians. There is this element of worship and praise that you've seen this great uh, deliverance of the Lord and all you can do is worship God. Jephthah's daughter is a woman of God. And what's Jephthah's response when he sees her? Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. And you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I've opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. 
There's a lot of bad fathers in the Bible. Um, I would argue that Jephthah, uh, this phrase, probably, and then the vow, definitely puts him in the running for the worst. Like, just the worst father. Not only does he offer somebody in his household, understanding that it may be his daughter, his only child, but when she shows up, he blames her. Terrible, terrible parenting there. And the amazing thing is Jephthah's daughter's response, that we see her faith in her praising the Lord when she comes out to meet her father, and her faith continues here, and she is submissive. She said, let this thing be done to me. Um, the only thing I ask is two months so I can go mourn the fact that I will die a virgin and I will never have children or a husband. And the last thing he says to her is go. And he, she goes away for two months and she comes back. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father. And here Jephthah is faced with a horrible problem of his own making. He can either sin or he can sin. He can either break the third commandment or he can break the sixth commandment. He can either break the third commandment, which is do not take the name of the Lord in vain. So do not make vows and then break them. Or he can break the sixth commandment, do not murder. Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there are verses in both that explicitly state you are never to not just sacrifice people, but especially not to sacrifice your children. That is an explicit no-no. Uh, that is explicitly forbidden. And so Jephthah now has a choice of what is the lesser evil. And I disagree with his choice. Jephthah uh, does to her as he vowed. So Jephthah, he sacrifices his daughter to the Lord as a burnt offering. I would argue that the lesser evil would have been for him to break his vow to the Lord and accept the consequences. And it, I would say that God would have punished him for that. Maybe God would have killed him. Maybe God would have probably, in worse uh, in Jephthah's mind, taken away leadership of the people of Gilead from him for breaking his vow. But Jephthah doesn't have the courage uh, to take that uh, consequence on himself. He lets his daughter pay the consequence. And I'd say that uh, one more uh, piece of evidence that uh, he did actually sacrifice her is the impact it had on the culture in Israel, because it became a custom in all Israel for daughters of Israel uh, year by year to go into the mountains and lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days out of the year. If all he had done was set her aside and said, you know what, you're dedicated to the Lord, you're never going to marry, you're never going to have kids, that wouldn't have been something that would have impacted them enough that that would have changed the very customs of the people of Israel. Rather, they are reacting in horror to what Jephthah did on the heels of a great victory that the Lord gave him. And this sets the stage for Jephthah's fourth negotiation. So we go back to Gideon, and in the story of Gideon, the Ephraimites, uh, who are from uh, the west side of the Jordan, uh, they threaten Gideon as well. You know what? You didn't call us up to fight for you. Um, you're in trouble now. They threaten Gideon. 
Gideon is conciliatory towards them. He acts as a peacemaker and he talks them down. And so war is averted. Jephthah, however, has none of that. And it's interesting because the opening phrase that the uh, Ephraimites have uh, against Jephthah seems to be particularly geared towards him. Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. What kind of interaction did Jephthah just have with fire? He just burnt his daughter as a sacrifice. And it appears that the Ephraimites are using this to insult Jephthah. They are certainly escalating it. They want to fight. Now Jephthah has a choice. He can act as a peacemaker like Gideon did, or he can do what he says. And Jephthah says, I and my people. So he doesn't even say the Israelites. Basically, the Gileadites and I, uh, we had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And uh, you know, when I called you, you didn't show up. And so I knew you guys weren't going to help me. So I took my life in my own hands. I crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hands. As an aside, this is the only time the Lord is mentioned in this entire part of the story. Jephthah does give credit to the Lord for his great victory over the Ammonites, but at no point do either the Ephraimites or Jephthah call on the name of the Lord to see if this is a good idea. But Jephthah basically says, you Ephraimites, you're useless. You're all the way on the other side of the, uh, of the Jordan. You weren't going to help me anyway, and if you had helped me, you probably wouldn't have been useful. I did this, me and my people. The Lord helped us. It's our victory. You know, go home. Why have you come to fight against me? And the Ephraimites move their army across the Jordan, and they move to attack Jephthah. And the Lord is conspicuously silent here. He says nothing um, uh, to support or uh, condemn either Jephthah or the Ephraimites. He's letting them and their sinful ways play out to the end. And so we see Jephthah's skill as a military leader uh, here because it's likely the Ephraimites had more men than the Gileadites did. The Gileadites had just been in a war. Not only that, the Ephraimites were one of the most populous uh, tribes in Israel, and yet it didn't matter. Jephthah trounces them. And not only does he defeat their army, but uh, I can't see the map well enough, but he, sne he basically, after he beats their army, he sneaks his army around and he captures the fords of, of the Jordan. And so now the only way home the Ephraimites have is through this army of Gileadites. And so it seems that some of the Ephraimites tried to sneak their way across and be like, yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. It's all good. You know, Judah, I'm a Judite maybe. Except that there was uh, differences in the accents. And so they ask the, uh, the Ephraimites to pronounce uh, Shibboleth and they can't. And they pronounce Sibboleth and they get killed. At least 42,000 men of this defeated army are killed trying to cross the fords of the Jordan. And Jephthah judges Israel six years. This is what uh, presages Jephthah being a judge over all Israel. He kills a bunch of Ephraimites. It's interesting to note as we uh, come to the end of, of Jephthah's life and kind of wrap his life up and get into some uh, discussions about some lessons we can learn from Jephthah, it's interesting to note the length that Jephthah judges Israel. Six years, 
How long did the Ammonites oppress Israel? Anybody? 18? 18. 18 years. This is the first time in Judges where the period of respite that the judge gives is less than the period of oppression. And it signifies that things are getting worse. And it uh, is a harbinger for what's going to come in the last few chapters. This is the first time that Israelites en masse kill each other. It's the uh, presages this civil war that we'll see in two weeks. Basically, everything about this last negotiation uh, shows that things, they're not getting better. And then Jephthah dies. And so as we, uh, as we uh, wrap up, before we wrap up, though, uh, I'd like to look at five lessons that I think we can take uh, from the life of Jephthah. There's a ton of uh, examples that we can take from the life of Jephthah, both things that we should do and things that we shouldn't. But uh, these are five that I think uh, really spoke to me as I was uh, uh, preparing this uh, and as I was praying about this. The first one is from chapter 10, when we see the Israelites um, and the gods that they worship. And we see the list of the gods that they worship. And the last two gods that they worship are the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And in the very next verse, who is it that the Lord sells them into slavery to? The Ammonites and the Philistines. And we see that idolatry leads to enslavement, which, le which leads to more idolatry if we don't repent. And we can see this in the li life uh, of Israel here in these 18 years, that they continually went back to the gods of the Ammonites and, and Philistines, to, to Dagon of the Philistines and Chemosh of the Ammonites, and, say, and said basically like, okay, Last year, the Ammonites and the Philistines, they invaded. Clearly, we didn't worship you well enough. Let's worship you even harder this year. See if that does it. Nope. Okay, next year, we'll worship you even harder. We'll give you even more. Each year, they de delve deeper and deeper into their enslavement to these idols. And each year, it doesn't pay out. And we might think, well, we don't worship idols. We don't worship Dagon and Chemosh. But how many people have money have, as an idol? How many people today say, you know what? It would, my life would just be a little bit better if I had 10% more money. Everything in my life, I'd be able to pay off my bills. I'd be able to save some money for retirement if I had 10% more. There was a study done many years ago that uh, looked at various uh, socioeconomic levels and pretty much everything from the just barely above the poverty line to the ultra rich um, said basically the same thing. I would be happy if I had about 10% more money. And what that says to me is that money is a major idol today and it enslaves us and leads to more idolatry because when we get that 10%, clearly we're not happy and we need 10% more. You know, I, I finally got that second house, the lake, but, you know, it's not as big as my neighbors, so I need 10% more money so I can knock that house down and build a bigger one. Okay, well, I have the bigger house, but now he bought a yacht, so I need a yacht. And, and it just continues and it continues. And it doesn't have to even necessarily need to be money. Anything that takes the place uh, of God as the preeminent position in our life uh, is an idol 
and it will lead to enslavement, which will lead to more idolatry if we don't repent. Psalm 115 uh, talks about idols and describes all the idols and how um, they have no mouths. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. Ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Idolatry, if we don't repent, will lead to destruction. The second thing, the second lesson that we can see, and once again, this is from the Israelites in chapter 10, is that God will not be mocked. The Israelites throughout the book of Judges have effectively been mocking God. They've been calling on him for deliverance. And when he delivers, they have not turned their back on their wicked ways. They have not turned their back on their idolatry. And finally, God has enough. He's like, you know what? You've mocked me for these last number of years, these last, all these judges that I raised up to save you. And each time you turn your back on me and uh, you go and you consort with idols. God will not be mocked. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not to be mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And we see the Israelites reaping what they sowed as the Ammonites and the Philistines uh, oppress their land. And when we, as Christians, uh, continue in persistent uh, habitual sin, we do it at our peril. David uh, quoted Hebrews 10.31 last week. It is a frightful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is a forgiving God. He is a loving God. He has paid the price for our sins, and we need now to live out that life. If we continue in perpetual sin thinking, God's paid for it. God's forgiven me. You know what? I can do whatever I want. God has forgiven me. We mock him, and we do so at our peril. The third lesson, God cannot be negotiated with. And unfortunately, Jephthah does not uh, learn this lesson. Or he, if he does learn the lesson, he learns it far too late. The thing about negotiation, any kind of negotiation, is that there is a comparative power level there. Um, Sometimes you come to the negotiation table as equals. Each side has something that the other wants. Uh, sometimes you come to the negotiating table with uh, vastly disparate, um, disparate power levels. Uh, you think about the end of World War I. But even there, the Allies had something that the Germans wanted. The Germans wanted to leave the war with dignity and not be invaded. And the Allies had uh, wanted something from the Germans, massive reparations. So they both came to the table, and though um, the Germans clearly came out the loser, they still got what they wanted. The problem is, is when we try to negotiate with God, we forget one thing. We bring nothing to the table. In, uh, in my breakout room, uh, Martha uh, mentioned this, and she said, yeah, we, we, bring we can't negotiate with God. We bring nothing to the table. And we don't. We can only approach God in a position of humility, understanding that he has given us everything. He has provided us with everything. There is nothing that we own, nothing that we have that is not ultimately his anyway. So what are we negotiating with? 
The only thing Jephthah brings to the table that he believes is sufficient to pique God's interest is something that is an abomination. It's child sacrifice. He thinks that this will get God's attention, that this will be sufficient to bribe God to ensure Jephthah's victory, when the irony is his victory was already assured. Our actions cannot make God act more on our behalf. Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. The, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Uh, the fourth thing I think we can learn from the life of Jephthah is that he was clearly more affected by his surrounding culture uh, in terms of his understanding of, of God and what God wanted than he was affected by the word of God. As I've said multiple times, Leviticus 18.21 and Deuteronomy 18.10 both explicitly prohibit child sacrifice. And yet we look at the surrounding cultures uh, uh, in Jephthah's time of Israel, uh, and many of them had child sacrifice as a tenet of their religion. It was generally only used in the most extreme of circumstances, but it was still there. And so clearly, in some way, Jephthah thought this was acceptable. His understanding of God, which was so clear and so faithful when he declares God a just judge, falls apart completely when he uh, tries to understand uh, what God wants from him. He thinks God, in the end, wants his only child, and that this will be enough to uh, make God uh, um, fight for him. There's some suggestion uh, from some commentators that maybe Jephthah looked at the story of Abraham and Isaac and completely misread it, that he thought maybe, you know, Abraham was told to go sacrifice his, his child, uh, and so he did, and then at the last second, God intervened, and he misses the fact that it was God that commanded Abraham, and that for Abraham, it was an act of faith. In this case, for Jephthah, it was not an act of faith. It was an act of manipulation and negotiation. It was an act of mocking God. We already said God will not be mocked. And so when Jephthah is about to sacrifice his daughter, God is silent. Finally, the story of Jephthah tells us that we need to be cautious with our words, that our words are powerful. In his third negotiation, he makes a vow. He makes an incredibly rash and stupid vow. His words are not thought through. And even more stupidly, he follows through on that vow. In the fourth negotiation, he has the opportunity to be a peacemaker, and he chooses not to. And one wonders if it's because of the opening insult the Ephraimites lay against him, which references the child that he just burnt as an offering. And so Jephthah's like, you know what? That's just, that's a, a bridge too far. Uh, you've, you've crossed the, the Rubicon now. I am not turning back. You've insulted me one too many times. You guys have done it. We're going to start a war. Instead of being a peacemaker like Gideon was, instead, instead of being conciliatory like Gideon was, we look at James chapter 3 when it talks about uh, the damage that the tongue can do that is set on fire by hell. 
and that there's nothing else in the world that can do damage like the tongue can and how we need to put a rein on it. We need to, to be cautious with what we say. Jephthah was not cautious with what he said in his third and fourth negotiations, and it ended up affecting his daughter, and it ended up affecting Israel as a whole. As we wrap up, um, J.D. Greer in his Bible studies on Judges, he always ends each study uh, of the judge uh, comparing them uh, to Jesus, that uh, every judge is really an opportunity for us to look forward to Jesus, because Jesus uh, is the ultimate savior. Each of these judges, they're, they're a temporal savior. They save Israel for a time, but they're not what Israel ultimately needs. And so each judge, um, Greer points out, has both uh, some comparisons with the life of Jesus, but also a lot of contrasts that Jesus fulfills perfectly. And we see in Jephthah's early life, we see the rejection that he uh, has laid upon him, that because he's the son of a prostitute, he's cast out. Isaiah 53 says Jesus is, was despised and rejected. We see him uh, rejected by his own people and, and crucified on the cross. And in contrast, though, they respond to these rejections very differently. Jephthah uh, responds to his, uh, his rejection with distrust, not only distrust of the people that rejected him, but ultimately distrust in the Lord. We compare, we contrast that with Jesus, who despite the rejection uh, of all the people and ultimately the rejection of the 12 people closest to him, the fact that all of his disciples abandon him on the night he's crucified. And despite that, he obediently, willingly, lovingly goes to the cross. We see that Jephthah had to be bribed uh, and coerced into coming to save Israel. That He basically had to be given everything he ever wanted before he would agree to come and fight uh, as the war leader for Gilead. And we contrast that with Jesus, who voluntarily uh, sets aside his glory uh, to save us through his life, death, and resurrection on the cross. And the final uh, contrast between Jephthah and Jesus is, is a major one. Uh, Jephthah unlawfully sacrifices his daughter. He thinks that this is what is needed to make him right with God. And in Jesus, we see the sacrifice, the only sacrifice that is needed to make us right with God in the person of Jesus. The lawful, lawful sacrifice that made peace between us and between God the Father. I think this is a good place to end. Does anybody have uh, any uh, any final questions? Um, anything that was brought up that uh, that you want to uh, ask about, or any comments that you have about the story of Jephthah? You have to unmute yourself. One of the things the uh, I think one of the commentators pointed out, and you think about this, and you've touched on it, Mike, is you know uh, Jephthah's um, upbringing. You know, being the uh, the son of a prostitute, an unnamed father, rejected, not just rejected, but driven out of town. Um, now, this is reading into it a little bit, but just 
just how unsure that made him like the, mm. the negotiator like he relied on his negotiating skill he relied on his tongue to get to get out of some scrapes and you see that probably when he was you know working with these uh you know these uh, these bandits or these mercenaries you know um when uh after he had left town and so there's always this doubt about who he is and what he can do and he's always trying to somehow cushion himself like or, or, or yeah, somehow have a cushion in place to make up for that self-doubt and that uh that almost this distrust that he has of himself and you wonder just how much of that have been shaped because of his upbringing yeah. and people who who you know who have had bad experiences with their parents or have been rejected by their parents often have a very difficult time trusting god just God's grace and God's love. They're always saying there's got to be a catch because nobody ever really loved me unless I did this or I negotiated mm -hmm. this. You wonder if there's a bit of that going on. People with bad or non-existent fathers oftentimes have trouble seeing God as father. Yeah, and so they they, they approach him in, in a negotiated way, right? Because mm -hmm. obviously it can't. Nobody's going to love him just unconditionally. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Mike, can you clarify more what you mean by when you say God cannot be negotiated with? I understand what you're talking about. We have nothing that we bring to the table, but you brought up that there's examples of God apparently being negotiated with throughout the Old Testament and maybe even in the New Testament. So can you clarify that? So negotiation, I would say that we come, you don't come to the negotiation table um, from a position of humility. Um, now, when we see God's mind being changed, it's usually uh, through prayer, and prayer always comes from a position of humility, that we understand that maybe God will change his mind, but that there is nothing we can do to coerce him into doing so. And we see an ultimate example of this in Jephthah in his third negotiation, where he feels that the only way he can guarantee the outcome that he wants is to sacrifice his daughter. And so ultimately, when everything we have is God's, when everything we are is God's, when everything we own is God's, what can we really offer him that's going to ensure that he does what we want him to do? And so that, that's what I would say, that uh, when we see God negotiating in the Old Testament and he concedes, it's from usually there's a position of, of humility. I would say that even Gideon had a position of humility when he was uh, negotiating with God, when he was asking for, uh, for signs, that he was still humble and understanding that he didn't deserve these. He just, yeah. he was so desperately scared. That's good. Yeah. Hi there. It's Jan. Um, yeah, hi, Jan. Hi. Hey, just wondering, like he seems to have more negatives than positives um, as outlined um, here. And uh, yet he, you know, able, able to uh, be in the Hebrew Hall of Fame, so to speak. Um, yeah. You know, so that is just a bit surprising. Um, you know, he was confident in God's judgment just in that one, um, in that one illustration. Moment, yeah. 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 I mean, I think if we look at what he did, like he definitely saved Israel. The Ammonites were a terrible, terrible threat. And he went out and that was not a, a cowardly thing to do. Like he had the spirit of the Lord upon him. Um, it seems that given that he didn't take 
the full force of Israelites that had been gathered at Mizpah on the other side of the Jordan, that he was even going in with a much smaller army than the Ammonites had. And so clearly there's an element of faith that Jephthah is exhibiting there. And his statement, um, Barry Webb, as I said before, says that this is Jephthah's crowning moment where he trusts fully in the justice of God, at least in that moment. And so it's those two things that uh, uh, allow for Jephthah's inclusion into the Hall of Faith. And I think even Jephthah being in the Hall of Faith is, is comforting to us because he was such a flawed and broken person. Are we not all flawed and broken people? Maybe we aren't sinning in the same way that Jephthah is. At least I hope not. But, uh, you know, I think in the end, we can look at him and we could say that, like, we are broken like he is broken. And yet he was a man of faith. Does that answer your question, Jim? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Nara? Uh, I'm sorry, Mike, but there's a, a lot of conflict for me here. Uh, the first person in the Bible that sacrifices uh, the human being, it's uh, himself, uh, our father, asked uh, uh, Abraham to bring Isaac for sacrificing. And he, after that, provided another thing. And uh, it's so weird for me in the, in the Jewish people, in the Jewish, Judaism people, that's the first time the human being being sacrificed on the altar for Lord and he doesn't say anything and he accepted to that sacrifice goes through uh, that sacrifice doesn't go through Isaac is saved Isaac that's is right but uh, that's the first time it's happened as a uh, uh, sorry my the name in English is a little harder for me Till Farsi Farsi is more close that but that Jephthah 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 so you say that he burned her daughter for Lord, and uh, there's nobody, even Levitians in the every tribe have that point to bring the God's rule between the tribe. Nobody has any um, objection for that one. Nobody has anything to say about that one because that's not normal. In the other uh, pagans one, they sacrifice kids for their gods, but for Yahweh, uh, that's, I cannot put all the puzzle beside each other. Yeah. Uh, okay, if and we say the Jephthah is very low in the faith and but her, his daughter was very good on faith because he said, take your vow with Lord, but he had a two months time to repent, to beg like a David. David two days uh, slept front of the Lord and don't eat, don't do anything, just beg him. But he didn't do anything for begging even. Yeah, it, it's he difficult. That, he did that nego negotiation finished. I believe as the daughter and father and the uh, creation and creator, we have a lot of negotiation with Lord. We have a lot of negotiation with father and he does with us actually. Always he try to protect us because we never go to his uh, standard. Always we're low, always we're low. And always he try still to bring us back. Uh, a little, um, uh, it it's so, goes so harsh for me. Normal, I'm so harsh on myself, but this uh, version was too harsh for Yahweh, for me, for whatever I'm imagining him in this book. So, so is your is your primary thing? You're wondering why God didn't intervene, why God didn't stop 
and uh, why chapter... not nobody? Because do you know, mm-hmm. it didn't exactly says that burned at her. Somehow, some per- uh, they uh, translated that way. That uh, like nuns, she never mm-hmm. married. She never go that one. Uh, that's very big things. If God let His tribe, His nation, to burn human being yep. for Him. Yeah, and I would say that your uh, what you bring up that that she spent the rest of her life as kind of this prototypical nun uh, devoted to the Lord. That that yeah. is one major mm-hmm. interpretation. Um, the the two main uh, people that I kind of worked my my uh, class around, uh, they argue that the best interpretation um, of the Hebrew. Uh, is the simplest one, which is that when it says he did to her as he had vowed, means that he did actually sacrifice uh, her mm-hmm. to to God. And that does bring up some big questions, like where were the priests and the Levites? Why didn't somebody say something to Jephthah? Was it because he was now this great war leader and that he uh, wouldn't have listened to any of them? Maybe uh we see a little bit of his temper in, in his fourth negotiation when he attacks the Ephraimites and maybe nobody wanted to cross Jephthah. There's a whole bunch of questions that we don't get the answers to. Um, but yeah, I, I don't like this story. Mm-hmm. This, this is not a pleasant story. Um, and if it did happen the way that it seems like uh, it was translated, and it seems that the way a number of of uh, um, people have interpreted it and, and translated it as, it's deeply disturbing. And ultimately, I think that the reason that God, I mean, I can't speak for God, but one of the reasons he may not have uh, intervened in the sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter is because Jephthah was trying to do this to manipulate him. And the Lord needed the people of Israel to realize they cannot manipulate him. They cannot make him do something that anything he does for them is based out of his grace and his mercy. They can't force him to do something like Jephthah was trying to force him to do something, if even just save his daughter. Can I yeah, add so this? I think the oh, sorry. Is it okay if I add to that? Yeah, go ahead, okay. Sarah. So I think it, this is one of the examples of, uh, I think this this verse happens twice in this book it goes like uh people did what is right in their own eyes so um a lot of things weren't being taught like you know they weren't they were not really educated with god's words and they just they just knew that there was the lord and they just did what it what they felt like was right you know so well, and obviously that, that was an option that was in practice all around them. And I mean, the, the, the equivalent would be where Christians today operate in such a way that if you actually really think about it, it runs against the teaching of God's word. But we, if, if, if we're not that familiar with it, then it just kind of seems that this is what everybody else is doing. So this is obviously what we should be doing. Um, because I, as Mike was saying, I mean, child sacrifice, even as, as a way of appeasing the gods and getting your God, getting gods on your side. I mean, that was, that was standard practice, except for with Yahweh. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was the world in which he lived. And so it's like, of course, this is what you do. And, oh, it's, it's too bad as my daughter. You know, I hope, I wish it was, you know, some, you know, one of my random servants, <laughs> one of my random servants. Mike, oh, I'm I was sorry. Gonna, oh, it was sorry. my wife. <laughs> 
Mike, I was going to suggest, um, I agree with the points you've raised. I wonder if in chapter 11, verse uh, 34, if the idea that it's his only child. So by this girl, if she is killed, either by sacrifice being burned or being given away as kind of a nun or whatever, either way, it's the end of his line. So that's why the rest of the women could all be broken up and going, oh, we think of Jephthah's daughter and stuff. Because in, in that Israelite culture, the end of a line was horrible. Like being yeah. barren was yeah. one thing. If you had multiple wives and you had one barren wife, she was distraught. But if that's your only child, yeah. that's it. It's done. So and, I think that, that might be another side. Yep. That's definitely one of the interpretations of, of why this was significant. Um, that having been said, sorry, go ahead, Natalia. Just wanted to add uh, quickly um, about Nera's question and your comments, Mike, um, mm -hmm. about a little bit of um, sort of comparison or not with Abraham. And um, so I just wanted to say that God knows our heart and Abraham's heart was mm. pure. He had pure intentions yeah he believed in the lord he had his one and only son also like jephthah um one and only child right he was breeding him and he was crying in his heart right when he went up the mountain because he knew what was going to happen but he believed in the lord because of all that lord provided for him in his son right and then here, like you were saying, Nera, why? Why wasn't he doing anything? Well, his heart wasn't pure. He got what he wanted, and basically the price was on the table, and he had to pay for it. Because otherwise it would have been him, and he wasn't ready for it. Yeah. I'm going to ask, uh, Ken, you raised your hand. I see that, uh, that hand icon on your screen. Go ahead. Oh, you have to unmute yourself, man. Otherwise, you have to read your lips. It's on mute, but I don't know. We had a problem in our room, too. The people on mute, oh, but can, you can cannot you hear, hear them. Ken? Oh, hang on. Ken is unmuted. You are unmuted, but uh, I bet it was a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, type it out. <laughs> I understood that. And then Jeremy, you have one question. Then I think we got to wrap up it. Boy, lots of good questions tonight. All right, Ken, what do you got? Mine's not really a question, but because um, I, I agree with everybody that is disturbed by this text um, as to why even God didn't send somebody else to intervene. Um, but I think part of it is, God is saying, you guys want to treat me like a God who requires the sacrifice. I will play along this time. Does, does that make sense? No. In, in the sense that no. the gods don't do anything. <laughs> no, I, 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 I do not believe that God look like it cut out. Yeah, you're, you're cutting out a lot, Jeremy. You're attenuating a ton. Sorry. Is, this, is, it, is it better now or not? Yeah, it's better. 
Okay. Naira, one challenge for Naira, uh, hopefully a good one, Naira. God doesn't seem to stop any of our sins along the way. So when Adam and Eve, he knew that that would be the death of all humanity, he allowed the sin to go on. So I think we have an example here. And I'm not arguing that he did no. kill his daughter or, or just like a nun, but no, God allowed I, the sin to I, follow its course. I totally agree with yeah. that one. That's our heart. That's um, he says your heart is a stone heart and you're not following me nobody cares about that thing but the point i'm looking at that one if they do kill each other if they did everything between themselves because of their heart stone but this one is sacrificing for yahweh mm -hmm. i cannot get that point i cannot understand because for sure god doesn't accept that sacrifice that's not I the sacrifice that god yeah, Love it. I, I would and agree with you 100%. Our broken there. Heart. Yeah, yeah. God, God does not accept Jephthah's sacrifice. Jephthah's sacrifice changes nothing. Jephthah had the exactly. victory. Jephthah had the victory before he made this stupid vow. He was, he was going to win the war. He didn't need to say that. And yeah. so God does not. God. Yeah. So okay. I, I think. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I think, think God you know, was offended by the vow. Abraham, hang on, hang on. Uh, so Ken, has, uh, hang on, Sumi, hang on. Um, Ken has asked, okay. if Jephthah was such a good negotiator, why would he negotiate such an unknown? He could have just said he'll sacrifice two bulls and a goat. Yeah. <laughs> Person's well, maybe, maybe, he was hoping, <laughs> maybe he was hoping a chicken would have come out first. That's right. Well, I mean, that, and that's part of the story is that in, in a household, you would have livestock and it's not like it, it could have just as been likely, though. Yeah, there's some ambiguity in the text. But I, I think he was more animal. hoping that it would just be a servant or maybe one of his concubines. You know, I think you're like. right. I, I think you're right. I, I just yeah. can't put it together with the verse before it saying the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephra. And mm -hmm. then. And then he had this idea to create this vow. So if the spirit yeah. of the Lord was truly on him, how could he even come up with that idea? I just, that I well, can't put together. Yeah. Except Lisa, except Lisa. Yeah. We, we all have uh, been filled by the Holy but, Spirit and I'll speak for myself. I do a lot of stupid things um, and against God, yeah. even though I have the, the very spirit. And, and the, other, the other thing is in the Old Testament, when you see the spirit of the Lord coming on someone, it always means not so much for sanctification, but it means an empowering for a task. That's an important uh distinction. Sumi, you were going to ask something? I think, I think the difference between these two sacrifices is that Jephra, Jephthah decided to make this vow on his own. It yeah. was yeah, not God that commanded yeah. him to do it, whereas in, it, with Abraham, it was God that commanded him to do it. And Absolutely. I think that's the difference. That is a that that's is a major truly, difference. That's a truly difference, but that's a totally we have a human sacrificing in the whole Bible. Human sacrificing by fire. Yeah. Yeah. Do you get my point? Because normally the pagan just have that one. Yeah. Yeah. So it's he's, again, yeah. influenced by yeah. his culture. Wow. Yeah. Well, the good thing is that next week when we look at Samson, there will be no none of these strange questions. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> no, no foxes with tails on fire or anything. Yeah, that's right. Oh, it's fun though. It's great. Mike, you did an awesome job today. What Thank a you. tough text. Uh, really appreciate that. Thank yeah, that's, uh, clapping emojis and uh, all that. <laughs> um, no, that was so good.
Um, I'm going to just uh, stop our recording. Then I'm going to get you to pray. Actually, let's record you praying. Uh, why don't you uh, lead us in prayer, and then we'll we'll wrap up for tonight. Sure. Lord, you are God uh, of Jephthah as you are God of us. And uh, we look at Jephthah and we do see some moments uh, of faith. And, and in those moments, we can take uh, positive examples. But Lord, we also look at Jephthah and we see some, some horrible mistakes he made. And one of the primary ones is thinking that he could manipulate, manipulate you. Lord, let us never go into prayer thinking that we can manipulate you. Help us always to remember that we bring nothing to the table, that everything we have and everything we are is because of your great grace and mercy, that our salvation is solely dependent on you because of the sacrifice of your son. Help us to remember this every moment of every day and to go into every day uh, in a position of humility, understanding that you are God and we are not. Just pray for all my brothers and sisters, Lord. Uh, just, uh, yeah, as we go into these uncertain times, give us opportunities to be uh, Christ to the people around us, the people that we interact with either uh, in reality or online, Lord. Help us to be your witness to everyone we see. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.